All right, so it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews. We actually began the book of Hebrews with an introduction, um, and then we made it through three verses. And uh, they're good verses, though, right? <clears throat> and when we looked at these three verses, we read seven statements of truth about the person of Jesus that are used by the author to establish a case for the superiority of Jesus. And it's the superiority of Jesus who brings to us a better way to God. And, and uh, a better way than Judaism, a better way than the Mosaic Law, as this letter is its original um, uh, application, was to uh, Jewish believers, those who had moved on through Judaism into Christianity, and became followers of Jesus Christ, and had left um, the, the old Mosaic ways and, the, and, the, and, and those kinds of things behind to, to have freedom and life in Christ. And ultimately, we know that um, the superiority of Jesus Christ, who brings a better way to God, has application into our lives today because man, in our, in our foolishness, um, down through time, whether it's, whether it's men who worship and women who worship the true and living God like we do, or even people who think they're worshiping a God, these pagan worshipers, who, who create or devise ways in which we think or believe we can connect to a sovereign, almighty God, right? And that goes on today. Many religions are, are, are rooted in what, what man thinks he can do to, to connect to God. And what we know ultimately is that through the book of Hebrews, we see the truth being revealed to us of what Jesus spoke to his disciples when he said to them in John chapter 14, verse 6, right? He said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other person, no other way, no other name by which men can call upon and be saved. And so these seven statements found in verse 3 declare to us that Jesus is superior, firstly, because it says he's the heir of all things. Seven things. I'll, I'll briefly highlight them again. He's the heir of all things. These are the reasons why he's superior. He is the creator of all things. He is the brightness of the glory of God. He's the expressed image of God. He upholds all things by the power of God's word, his word, and he purged our sin. And lastly, number seven, he's seated at the right hand of God. Now, or we know, the Bible tells us that he's living to make intercession for us. He is the only way because of these things. And clearly this reveals to us the nature of who Jesus is. And so with these declarations, the, the case is being made for Jesus as the catalyst or literally as the vehicle, picture that in your mind, for this better way, and it's because of his immense superiority. And these seven statements are important for us to understand and pay attention to, and this is one of the reasons why I'm restating them again today, because as we study through the book of Hebrews, these seven statements are the introductory outline that will carry us through the next 10 chapters of the book. I know there's more than 10 chapters, but if you remember, I said the first 10 up to about verse 14, they're doctrine, they're, they're teaching, and then there's application that will be applied in regards to what we've just been taught. But the doctrinal point of it coincides with these seven I am statements to give us an outline. And each point that is made in these next 10 chapters is established on one of these found seven foundational statements of truth. 
in regards to the person of Jesus Christ, about the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the heir, because he's the creator, right? Because he's the express image of God. What does that mean? What does that, what should we learn as a result of that? And the first point that's being made as we pick back up here in chapter 1, verse 4, and then moving on into chapter 2, is this, is that Jesus is superior and literally better to the angels because there's some confusion going on at the time when this was written about the person of Jesus, right, in relationship to certain things, including angels, because he's he's superior and better than the angels, because as the heir of all things, what does that mean? As the heir of all things, he has obtained a more excellent name than they. That's That's what we read here. And in light of this, It seems as if the recipients of the letters, this, this letter, its original recipients, these Jewish believers, they were trying to, 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 to lower um, the status of Jesus. They were trying to place him into a category of being an angel. And we might think, oh, that's foolishness. But yet that same kind of foolishness goes on today in all kinds of religions. And, one of the one that comes to mind, one that I um, dived into uh, pretty deeply before I became a Christian and gave my life to Christ was, was the, the Mormon religion. The Mormon religion teaches that Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, that he's a little g, a God and among many gods, and actually that he's the brother of Lucifer. And we know that Lucifer is a created being. He's a fallen angel, now goes by the name of Satan. And, and there's this, this, this dumbing down of the person of Christ in a very ungodly way to put him on, on, on a level that is not true to who he is. And that was, that was going on here. And there's a reason why people do that. But, and we'll get to that in, in a minute. But this, this category of angel, that word angel that, that these Jewish believers were confusing Jesus Christ with, the, the Greek word that's used here for angel I want to point out it's a unique word. It has a dual application in its meaning. Uh, It it has an an application in the human sense in regards to a human messenger, um, one who serves as an envoy or literally one who is sent. That this Greek word could have an application to a human being who carries out and delivers messages. But it also can refer to a transcendent power, something that we're more familiar with when we think about angels and spiritual beings and supernatural things but it's also one who whose job is to carry out various missions or tasks and according to verse 14 if you'll look there in this chapter these are the angelical messengers of god ministering spirits who have been sent from god from his throne room and i refer to both of these applications in regards to their greek origin because when people are looking for some kind of wiggle room in justifying or choosing what they will and will not believe and what they will and will not do, they tend to minimize, they, they tend to justify that, those behaviors and those beliefs by minimizing the authority of Jesus Christ, right? Because think about it, if they, can, if they in their mind or, 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 or can and, and come to believe something not, not true about the person of Jesus and, and make him a great man among, among other men, right? You've heard people say, I don't believe Jesus is God. I, I believe he's a good teacher, maybe a prophet, right? 
And, and they're putting Jesus equal on the level of all other human beings. When they do that, they ultimately can, in their mind, rationalize choosing whether or not they will accept what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. And I think it's safe to say that this has been the conclusion of so many in their so-called quest for the historical Jesus. Because if a person can minimize Jesus into a great teacher who was unfortunately crucified, then they can believe, think, and do as they please. But if Jesus is, in fact, the Son of the living God, in a literal sense, even as we sang this morning, as the virgin birth would suggest, then Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then His Word is final. Is it not? So as I mentioned in the introduction to the author of in the introduction, the author of Hebrews seems to be writing to a congregation of Christian Jews who have been flirting with the idea of returning to their former Judaism, giving up Christianity, and this was one of the means, one of the things that were going on, is that they were, they were going, Jesus isn't God. He, he, he's just like the angels. You know, we recognize there's some supernatural stuff going on, and so then it begins to justify in their mind reasons for, for neglecting, as we'll read later on, this great salvation that they've received. Consequently, the author clearly decisively and decisively declares that Jesus is Lord because of this truth. He is the unique Son of God. That's the testimony. That's the point that's being established. Therefore, Jesus as as son, who is heir, is superior, right? The son of God, superior, of high status, more prominent, and high ranking in, 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 in any category in regards to persons or heavenly beings. He's far above. His name here, son, spoken of in verse 5, surpasses any other name, for he has a superior name. This is confirmed in Philippians for us. Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. He says, In being found, Jesus, in, an, in, in, in appearance as a man, Jesus, the Son of God, being found in an appearance of man, we know that he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth and those beneath the earth. And of those, oh, sorry, sorry, so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we read these verses, I want you to follow along and know that the, the majority of the rest of this chapter are Old Testament quotes. And, and I'll set the stage for it because really what this is, is, is the affirming testimony of God himself. The author is literally saying, don't take my word for it, take God's word for it. The word of God says this. And so in verse 4 we read, it says, having become, have become, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained more excellent, a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, speaking of God, ever say about any of the angels? You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, not just once, twice, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, to the angels of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his 
ministers of flame and fire. But to his son, again, this delineation between the two, to his son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And in addition to this, verse 10, it says, he said, he also said, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. That's a pretty cool account. Go read it in the book of Revelation. It tells us about it. And they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit? Could you imagine that? The angels, these servants of God, stand at the throne room of God, at God's feet there, going to and fro, ministering and doing the work that God would say, oh, come, come and sit down. He's never said that, but to the Son. Sit. After the work was done, we know that Jesus ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And again, speaking about the angels in verse 14, this concluding question, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And of course, the answer is yes. And when I consider this thought, this is kind of difficult to follow this reasoning, I think, a little bit for us in our society today because the, 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 our name, your name, my name, has lost value in the culture and in the society that we live in. Nobody does a deal by a handshake anymore because we know that person, we would say, has a good name, right? Instead, said we have contracts and corporations and all these things that people hide their name behind today and hire lawyers to protect and to sue and, and do all of this. And it wasn't like that so many years ago where, where, where you were known by your name. Your name had so much meaning and value in culture and society. And so I want to give an example because when I think about the about Jesus, that he's superior because of his name, the name above all names. One of the things that pops into my mind, and I'm, I'm, no, I'm by no means a poet or, or, or a, a play-type guy, um, but Romeo and Juliet comes to mind. I have read it. I've studied it in school. Um, I'm, and, but, you know, Shakespeare wrote it, and the scene that comes to my mind is when Juliet asks the question, what is in a name? We should ask that in light of what we're reading here. Is the name above all names? Well, what is in a name? Why is that so important? And in that scene, Romeo and Juliet, this well-known love story, and this famous quote from one of the most familiar scenes in the play, the balcony scene, right? And in this balcony scene, these two teenage lovebirds have just met at a party at Juliet's house. And as evening's coming to an end, Romeo doesn't want to leave the Capulet's property, so he ditches his friends, and he stays behind, and he hides out in the orchard behind the Capulet's house there below the balcony. But he's not supposed to be there, right? You guys know. He's not supposed to be there because he's the son of Capulet's biggest enemy. He's a Montague. Yet he determines that seeing Juliet, again, is worth the risk, right? Teenage love. 
And in this balcony scene, Juliet, who is infatuated, also infatuated with Romeo, she's on the balcony. He's below. She doesn't know. She's on the balcony. She's overlooking this orchard when she says, in the midst of her reasoning, what is in a name? She's contemplating her love for Romeo. And in doing so, she's wondering this. Why does the guy, why does the guy I, I, I love have to be a mod to you? And she does so because she's struggling with this conflict between her feelings for Romeo and her knowledge of who he is and the fact that he's an enemy of her family. But then she has an idea. Teenage logic. No offense. Love you guys. She's not going to picture Romeo as a Montague. Right? They're her enemy. She'll picture him just as Romeo, and in doing so, she contemplates wrongly further by saying, how much does a name really mean anyway? They can't be found anywhere on our bodies. They can't even change who we are. Even a rose would be as lovely if it weren't called a rose. So with great futility, she tries to separate Romeo from his identity as a Montague as a way of rationalizing her love, but she quickly realizes how this is not possible. One cannot be separated from their name. And so Juliet considers other alternatives. I'll just desert my family. And she does so because she can't imagine that their love and their families, that their love and their families can ever be reconciled. The Montagues and the Capulets hate each other that much. And what I hope that we come to realize as a result of this example is that a name is of great importance, is it not? It is our identity. It declares exactly who we are. In other words, I am my name and my name is who I am. And this means that we are directly tied to our identity, to our name. And this is never truer in regards to Jesus, the name of Jesus, who has by an inheritance obtained the most excellent name, a more excellent name than the angels. For Jesus wears this name, is what the author says here, Son of God. Son of God. And it's clear Please don't confuse this and think that it's some kind of title. It's more than that. In this context, this holy name, the Son of God, is more than the title, a title that he wears, as it's a declaration clearly by what we read on and a description of not only what Jesus did, but who and what Jesus is. And it identifies for us his nature, the Son of God, his character, the Son of God. And in light of this, we see that there are many reasons for why it's important for us to understand, guys, the surpassing excellence of Jesus, setting him so far above every angelic being. And so in the final verses of chapter one, the writer here proceeds in making his point by establishing this biblical defense, right? He, he says, this is how it is. He kind of says, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Look at what God has said in the defense of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, having become so much better than the angels. And he does so with seven Old Testament quotes, references that speak to the deity of Jesus. And in doing so, the author rightly reasons for us and affirms that Jesus is greater simply because this, he's God. 
And I think it's safe to say that the, the first three verses of this chapter, in it has been clearly established that Jesus is the heir, the creator, revealer, sustainer, redeemer, and ruler. And for those reasons, he's, we should already conclude that he's far superior than any other angelic being. But here in verse 4, it tells us that, look at the word there. Jesus became better. He became better than the angels. And this, this, this statement might seem a little confusing to say that Jesus became better. And for the sake of clarity, it could be rightly said that Jesus is eternally better, right? We know that. He's perfect in every way. Sinless and spotless. No blemish. Eternally perfect and better than the angels. But he also became better. That's a true statement. And let's look at that. Better than the angels. He became better. How does one who is better, perfect, become better? And Jesus became better than the angels in the sense that he was made perfect as our Redeemer. Through his sufferings, which provided us our redemption. And, and this is ultimately something that no angel has ever done. They only minister to those who will inherit salvation, is what the last verse of this chapter does. Far less than what Christ has done. Furthermore, this idea of Jesus became better is reiterated in chapter 2, verse 10. Look over there real quick. Where the author goes on to tell us that God, in executing his plan of redemption, think about this. God the Father, in executing his plan of redemption that was first spoken there in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve when they sinned, God seeking to redeem mankind from the curse of sin, from death, God, in, in, in executing his plan of redemption, made Jesus the captain of our salvation, the author of our salvation. Perfect, he says there, through what he suffered. And this is a challenging statement since we understand Jesus, again, to be eternally perfect. But the Greek word that's used here for perfect is teleu. And this word is, is translated to perfect in verse 10 and in also in verse 4, the same word. And it's not what we would normally relate or think of in regards to, you know, being flawless, right? Christ is eternally perfect. He's flawless. Because it, it, it has this meaning of completeness. There's, it, it means to finish, to reach a goal, to be fulfilled, to complete. So in order for Jesus to be the author or the captain of our salvation, he had to suffer a death on the cross. And we know that there was the truth. And Jesus himself, on the night of his betrayal, when he was rested there in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed to the Father, wept, sweat, Droplets of blood. Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. And, and of course, we know that there was no other way. And Jesus ultimately submitting himself to the will of the Father as he had always done. said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. Not my plan, not any other way, but your plan be done. And having done so... Jesus was perfected. What does that mean? Jesus completed. And he, he became what he was sent, what he sent to do. He was sent to be the Savior, and he became the Savior through his sufferings. And that's why Jesus on the cross could say, it's done. It's finished. And for this additional reason, Jesus has a more excellent name than the angels. 
literally who Jesus is and what Jesus did and does is more excellent. And now hear this affirming testimony of God. Jesus, our Savior, according to the affirming testimony of God the Father, found in these seven Old Testament quotes, first in, 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 in verse 5, which is a quote from Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, twice it said, Jesus our Savior, according to the affirming testimony of God, is the only begotten Son of God. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who, the only begotten Son of God, who, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, quoted here in verse 6, is worshipped by the angels. This is my son. He's worshipped by the angels. And in Psalm 104, verse 4, quoted in 7, furthermore, God's saying, and he's served by the angels. Jesus, our Savior, the only begotten Son of God, as testified by God himself, is the begotten Son of God, is worshipped by the angels, is served by the angels, and he's also been called by God the Father, according to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, quoted here in verses 8 and 9, to be, he says it, the all-powerful God. And, in addition to this, in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, quoted here in verses 10 through 12, also to be eternal, the eternal Lord, the Almighty God, the eternal Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, who is worshipped and served by the angels. And lastly, he is superior, if we need another reason, he's superior to the angels because he, according to what God says in Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted here in verse 13, has sat down. He's been invited to sit down, having completed the work. While the angels, who are far less, work on continually. Now we need to understand, what is the main point of this? What's the main purpose of this? And the main purpose in establishing the fact that Jesus is equal to God, God in the flesh, and greater than the angels, is so that we understand this. That the message he brings is greater than any message that the angels has ever brought. Remember, look back to the beginning of chapter 1. I know we're going backwards. We're, we're, going, we're going backwards to go forwards. Back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're told that God, this is how this book began. This is the thought. This is the initial point that God has communicated in the past in various times and in various ways, has done so now through... What does it say there? His son. And for the Hebrew people, this is one thing that we're not familiar with as Gentiles. The Hebrew people, they, they associated the, 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 the giving of the law, the communicating of God to mankind through the angels. And, and this is in part because of what we even read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. That when God came to Mount Sinai there to meet with Moses and the law was given, the Mosaic law was established, the, or the, the, the Mosaic covenant was established and the law was given, it says that the Lord came to Mount Sinai with ten thousands of his angelic saints, of angels. Those who ministered, those who delivered this law, this word from God. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, it even takes it a verse farther when it says that the Hebrew people had received the direction of the law, the law and the direction, how to follow it, what to do, how to apply it, these kinds of things, by these angels is what it says. 
And yet the Hebrew people had refused to keep it. That's key. And the bottom line is, is that Jesus is God supremely, God, Jesus is God's supremely great son. And, and here's what it all boils down to. All of this kind of boils down to this. Jesus is God's great, supremely great son, and he should be heard. That's what we're being told. He should be heard. And his good news message, what he, the message that he has brought, the message that he has become, tells of God's love, God's great love, the love that God the Father has for us. And like in the Garden of Eden, when God came looking for Adam and Eve, his children whom he greatly loved after they had sinned, right? They'd eaten of the tree that they weren't supposed to. God came looking, we're told, for them, his children. So too has God, does God come looking for us to communicate a message to us. And he sent his only son that through his son, the world might come to know and receive this great love that God has for us. So, in the first four verses of this next chapter, the lesson, this lesson, as it's boiled down and communicated, the lesson of this first chapter is now applied. That's why there's a therefore in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's an application for us. The lesson and the application. And the application is this. Listen to the message so you don't drift away. And in verse 1 it says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's a given based upon what this says. If we don't pay attention to this message, if we don't take earnest heed, we're going to drift away. It's a warning. It's an encouragement. For if the word, verse 2, through the angels, proves steadfast, speaking of the message, the angels that, the, the, that had been delivered in the past, right? Not now, something new, something better through Jesus. For if the word spoken through the angels in the past provided steadfast, or excuse me, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. We know that's true. God held people accountable to what they knew. How then shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, verse 4, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Question mark. How? Therefore, we must give heed all the more to the things that we've heard lest we drift away. In other words, let's connect the dots. Because of the superiority of Jesus, we must pay attention to him and to the message that he has brought to us. So what is it that we've heard? What is it that we've heard? What is the message we're being warned to give an earnest heed to? And guys, it's this better message that we're so familiar with, which has been handed down by God, hand-delivered by God through His Son. It tells of how salvation has come to us as a result of God's grace through our faith 
in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a message that tells of God's love for us and how he came to the earth as a man and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross in order to be a perfect sacrifice and to make the payment with his own life for our sins so that we may escape death and be restored back to our creator, our heavenly father, and ultimately have right relationship with him. That's a pretty good message. It's a great message. And this warning to give the more earnest heed is the first of five that we will go through as we go through this letter. And, and the warning or the encouragement taught, attached to the warning is to give them more earnest heed. And this simply means this. Give careful attention to this message. And we're given the, this, this exhortation because... The danger, as is pointed out in verse 3, the danger is that we would neglect so great a salvation. And you know what? When we look at ourselves, we all know it's true. It's in us, right? We can neglect this salvation, this wonderful gift that, that we've received. We don't treasure it. We don't value it in a way that we should. I shared this with the service last night. Um, you know, I have a safe. And there, there's things in it I like. It's in, they're in there because I, I pay it, I give them, I, I don't neglect them. Right? And we as humans, we have things that we value. We pay attention. We give care to it. We don't neglect. And I'm telling you, there is nothing greater than what we're talking about here. And listen, this is why. Because here's the, here's the key of it. Our salvation is rooted in relationship by grace through faith in who? In Jesus. Our salvation is rooted in relationship with Jesus. And in order to not neglect this great salvation, we need to daily take action to cultivate this relationship with Jesus lest we drift away, lest we go our own way, lest we do our own will, our own thing. Guys, this is true. Think about it just on, on a more maybe concrete way of thinking for us. It's true in regards to all relationships. Think about your marriage for those of you who are married. Think about it with your kids, with your friends. And it's even more true in regards to your relationship with Jesus. So in order to have a good relationship, whether it's with one another or with Jesus, there are some simple things that must be done. And in order to not neglect a relationship, the first thing that you got to do is you got to spend time talking to that other person. If you don't talk to that other person, you're neglecting that relationship, right? Common sense. That's true. And the fact of the matter is any relationship, whether it's an earthly one or one with God, it won't be good unless there's ongoing communication. Simply put, we must talk and even more so listen to each other in order to have good relationship. And as you know, prayer is the spiritual tool, it's the means by which we have been given this indescribable privilege of talking to God who is our Heavenly Father, our all-powerful Creator, our loving Savior. Now, the best instruction on, on how to pray, I'm not going to give a whole study on prayer, but just go look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 17, where Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Bible is clear to teach us 
that, that in addition to knowing how to pray, it teaches us the purpose of prayer, and this needs to be the foundation of our prayer life, is for us to join with God in order to accomplish His purposes here on this earth. Heavenly Father, your will be done, not mine, as on as in heaven is, is here, as is in heaven here on this earth, and to accomplish ultimately otherwise what might not have been done if we have not prayed, aligning ourselves with the will and the work of God. It is not primarily to get God to do the things that we want or to bring us the things that we desire, to bring God heaven bring us the things that we desire. There's an aspect of prayer in that. James writes, you have not because you ask not. I mean, he goes on to say some other things, but you know, we're called to make our requests known. God wants that as well. But he wants our will to be in line with his will. And in light of this admonition to take heed and not neglect, I want to point out that, that the fact that we spend, um, the, the, the fact is, is if we spend more time in prayer, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time we spend speaking to God and listening to what he has to say to communicate to us, the more familiar with his voice we're going to become. And listen, this is, an, this is a simple truth, but it's an important thing. Listen, because the better we are at recognizing God's voice and knowing when it is, in fact, God who is speaking to us, then we will become better followers of Christ. What does that mean? We'll be closer to him and less likely in that to be led astray. Listen to what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, right? We get the, the, the analogy there. The language that Jesus is speaking and speaking about a shepherd and being good, the good shepherd, he said, when he, Jesus, the good shepherd, brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they, it says, he says, they know my voice. And, and think about this in the aspect of not neglecting this relationship, this salvation. We know his voice, we hear his voice, and we follow him. We are close to him. And he goes on to say, they will by no means, because they hear my voice, they know my voice, they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. And the other important aspect, I'm only going to talk about two in regards to relationship. I think these are kind of the, probably the most key. You've got to talk to God. You've got to talk to one another. The other thing that's needed to maintain a good relationship that we're not neglecting the salvation that we've received, this great salvation, is that one must spend time with another person in order to have a good relationship with them. And, and specifically, spending time with that person in order to get to know that person on a more intimate and personal way. Hey man, this is needed in all earthly relationships, but especially within the marriage relationship, guys, gals. Yet sadly, this aspect of our marriages is often neglected and our marriages suffered. We don't spend quality time together seeking to get to know that one another in a more intimate and in a more personal way, being intentional, not neglecting. And I believe from my years of doing premarital counseling that most people, when they're preparing to get married and when they get married, they have the equivalent of a grade school education on how well they know their spouse. As a matter of fact, they show up in my office afterwards and they, they, they've been married and they're like, uh, I, I don't know this person at all. This isn't the person I thought I was marrying. All right, well, it is. And, and, and here you go. <laughs> 
And, and some of you are like that. I like, this is not who I thought I was marrying. But the fact of the matter is, in order to have a good marriage, you know this to be true, it's important to continue to educate ourselves. To seek to have doctorates in knowing one another, if you would. Looking to learn everything there is to know about our spouse. Now, I will say this. I think you ladies have it a little bit easier because we as men are pretty simple. I tell my wife all the time, she, I said, you, you don't know me. I'm mysterious and unpredictable. She's all, no, you're not. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But it's harder for us guys because I think because God has made you women a little more complex. Amen, brothers? And this is why God has commanded the husband. Don't take my word for it. God's word says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, for us men to dwell with our wives in understanding. To dwell with understanding. To dwell with them in understanding. God doesn't say understand them. He says dwell in understanding. Simply put, well, this is what, all joking aside, God has put this instruction for us to study our wives and to get to know them. And what that means, when we dwell in understanding with somebody, we experience life together. We do life together by dwelling with them. That's the key word. Dwell with them in understanding. You know, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the early church and he even prays, my desire is that you would grow in your knowledge and understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you would grow in your knowledge and understanding. And that comes by dwelling with him. Jesus even spoke about him being the branch or the, the vine. And we're the branches. And we're to abide in him, to dwell in him. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we need to take heed to the salvation message that we've heard by and received by continually seeking God more, finding out about him more. And the Bible teaches us that when we come to God, it says this again over and over, that we're like infants when we come to God in regards to our understanding of who he is, our knowledge of who he is. We've not experienced him. We've not dwelt with him. We've not walked with him much. So we have a very infant-like understanding of who God is, a small understanding, and of what God's will is for our lives. However, we're admonished, right, to continue to grow. And the primary way, hear this, the primary way by which we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is is through his word, right here. And therefore, it's important. Why is it? Because... God makes himself known and his will known and his ways known to us from us through his word here. And, and God says, here it is. Follow it. Do it. Live by it in faith. And in doing so, we experience God. God says it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to experience his will and his way for my life. And I'm going to get to know him more as a result of that. And so we need to read God's word. We need to study God's word. We need to meditate on God's word. We need to live according to God's word so that we may come to know him more. We will not if we don't. We will not if we don't. Because it's in the trusting of what God has said. It's in the living of our lives in the way that God says to where God shows up and meets us there and he reveals himself to us. We experience him 
through it. So, the lesson applied, but the lesson is also emphasized in these first four verses. You know, there are many times when I was communicating important messages to my kids. Listen, pay attention. I want you to do this, and here it is. And they go like, walk off. I'm like, oh, no, no, come back. Let me tell you again. Are you sure you got it? Right? You know, we've all had those kinds of moments in our lives. God's doing that here for us through the author of the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit. The lesson's been given. It's been, it's been applied, and now it's emphasized. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And this is a, in my, in my estimation of things, this run-on question. How shall we escape such a if we if literally let's break it down like this if we neglect so great a love ask yourself that in your earthly relationships how is that how is it going to work out if we're neglecting that love this is the first of five warnings or reproofs found in the letters here and and i want to emphasize this word look again where it says that how shall we escape if we neglect it's not reject but neglect and we know if you reject this great salvation you're left to stand before the almighty god on your own without the blood of jesus without the sacrifice and you've devised in yourself some other way in which you think you may be right for god and on that day hear me now you will be found you will be found unworthy. And all of your sin will stand before you, before God, who is a just God, and you will be judged if you reject this great salvation message, this great love of God, this relationship that he wants to have with you. But the word isn't reject, the word is neglect. And so in light of this, we need to, in light of this warning of not to neglect, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we're not going to escape? We are saved by grace through faith, but yet we can neglect it. And if we neglect it, there's going to be a negative consequence. And, 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 and so certainly it's not judgment, right? The Bible says that we are no longer children of wrath. That all of the wrath of God that had been stored up for us because of our sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He took it all. Every drop of that cup he drank. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 details this. However, if we neglect this great... Salvation, if Debbie and the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. If we neglect this great salvation and this relationship with God that we have now been entered into, that we've now entered into with him, this is what we should expect to not escape. We should expect to not escape the discipline that is waiting when we're not walking in God with unity. Discipline. So we're children of grace and mercy, and there's no longer wrath stored up for us, but God tells us, because he loves us, that he disciplines those whom he loves. And God's discipline is always designed to bring us back into right relationship with him. It's not like, oh, you're neglecting me. <laughs> Done with you. 
God allows for discipline to come into our life, just like we do with our own kids, to correct us and bring us back into unity with him. How can two walk together if they do not agree? And God brings us back into agreement with him through discipline. That word repentance means literally to turn around, to go the other direction. And when we neglect that relationship with God, we stray. We go away. And because God loves us, he disciplines us and he corrects us. And through that discipline, through that correction, he says, turn around, repent, and come back to me. We will not escape the discipline. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says, man, for, for the child of God, God does not let us be successful at our sinning any longer. What a great thing. I was a pretty successful sinner beforehand. I was professional. And yet now it's like, you know, God just doesn't let me alone to my sin. He corrects me. He disciplines me. He brings me right in right relationship to him. And so with the closing thought with this, the Bible makes it clear Guys, God's hand of discipline is a beautiful, wonderful thing for us in our lives. And, and it's there when we neglect this great salvation, this great relationship, and we're told not to despise or to detest it, right? Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. And Father, I pray, God, that our hearts and our minds would be open to you today because the truth is, Lord, if we allow you to search our heart today, there are areas of our lives, places in our hearts, thoughts in our minds, Lord, were because we've neglected this great salvation, this great relationship, this great love, Lord, where we've gone astray. We've gone astray. And Lord, maybe we've even detested your, your correction. We, maybe we've cursed it and seen it as an unloving thing and rebelled and resisted. And I pray, God, that that would not be the case any longer this morning. Lord, that we would submit again to you and walk in unity with you. Be um, side by side with your arm around us, leading us and guiding us, Lord, into the place of and the perfect place that you desire us to be. <coughs> Lord, thank you, God, for those times when you have corrected us and disciplined us, and we've looked back upon it and go, and just been so thankful. And Lord, may we be thankful again that you don't leave us to ourselves and let us go our own way. Father, we love you, and we think about, again, the time of season that we're in and the wonderful gift that you've given to us. Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Intercessor. And Lord, I pray that we would treasure and value this relationship more than any other thing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand?